This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. You see them almost everywhere you go, even though they're small. At least as far as animals go, they're small. I'll even bet that some of them visited you the last time you had an outdoor picnic. What am I talking about? Ants. You might think you know a lot about them, but actually, there are many ant species, and they all have interesting stories. The species of ants we'll be talking about today have colonies so small that they all live in a single acorn shell, which, if you've never seen an acorn shell, is about the size of an average grape. But even though they're small, they have some interesting things they can teach us. In fact, you might be surprised what we can learn from these tiny creatures. Like, have you ever thought that ants do math? Our guest scientist is Stephen Pratt. He's going to let us get into the collective mind of ants. Dr. Pratt is a professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University, and he uses some very creative and colorful techniques to learn how ants are literally thinking. Welcome to the show, Professor Pratt. Uh, Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. To begin, what is the species of ant you work with? Well, the official scientific name is Temnothorax. That's a little bit of a mouthful, though. So um, a lot of people call them acorn ants, just because, as you say, that's where they like to live, inside acorns. I can remember that. I think I can do that really easily. Usually we think about ants, at least when I think about them, I think they're these ant colonies. You see this pile in the dirt, and they have these subterranean homes. Actually, in an earlier show, we had Bert Herdobler talk about one species of ants that has these huge colonies, and they go... 10 feet into the ground, and they're 90 feet in diameter. Well, your species of ants lives in a single acorn shell. How many individual ants live in a colony? In one of my colonies, if they have 500 ants, that's a really big colony. Most colonies will have maybe 50, 100, 200 ants. But inside the size of a grape, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, the ants themselves are very small. Each one is maybe an eighth of an inch long. Wow. And so the whole colony can fit quite cozily inside a single acorn. So did you pick these species of ants for a particular reason? There's a number of reasons, and one of them is the fact that they're so small. Because what I'm really interested in learning about ants is how they solve problems as a group. What I do all day is I bring a colony of ants into the laboratory. I give them some kind of problem to solve, like maybe how to make a decision between uh, where's the best place to eat or where's the best place to live. And then I watch how they, they solve it. And so you can imagine if I tried to do that with a colony you know, of army ants that has a million members or leafcutter ants who build these huge underground nests, I mean, for one thing, it'd be hard just to fit them in the lab. It'd be very difficult indeed for me to sort of carefully watch what each ant does as the colony tries to solve some problem. But these guys, they have only a few hundred workers. I can easily track each one of them on a little bit of shelf space. I can keep 50 or 60 colonies and easily do experiments with them and watch what they do and how they solve problems. You actually mentioned uh, army ants and leafcutter ants, and you're working with acorn ants. How many different kind of species of ants are there? There are something like 10,000 species that have actually been described, you know, given names. But most people work on ants figure that the real number must be something like twice that, more like 20,000 ants. And so there's a huge variety of different types of ants as well. So the kind of ants I work on, most people probably wouldn't ever bump into them. You know, they're not the kind of ants you'd see at your picnic. They're not the kind of ants who would make little trails in your kitchen, but there are just thousands of species like that, you know, living in the forest floor in acorns or in twigs or underneath rocks. And uh, these guys do a lot of really interesting things. Are there any places in the world that you don't find ants? Well, pretty much the only place where you're not going to find ants is Antarctica. I said that your research actually lets you learn about how these animals think. 
in a way it lets you get into the mind of the ants. Uh, what have you learned? My real interest in them is not just in how they think, but how they think as a group. You know, if you look at any one ant, it may not seem like it's that smart, that clever, that able to solve tough problems or anything like this. But if you get a group of them together, they can do really remarkable things. And a lot of times I try to introduce this by asking people if they've seen the Star Trek television show or movies where you have the Borg, where you have this sort of alien race that consists of, you know, literally millions of individuals. And you look at any one of those individuals and they're, they seem pretty incompetent, kind of clueless, almost zombie-like. But if you were to ask any one of those individual members, you know, what's the Borg up to? Who are they going to attack next? Whatever it is the Borg needs to know, then they wouldn't be able to tell you anything. But the Borg as a whole is able to do these remarkable things, you know, this really sophisticated civilization. Ants are kind of similar, hopefully a little less dangerous, but they do similar things. You take a, a single ant, ask it, say, to, for a colony that's, say, uh, living in an acorn that has, has broken down a bit, you know, maybe somebody stepped on it, you ask that single ant, well, go off and find a new place to live. Go look at all the other acorns that are out there in the forest floor that might be the best place to live. And that single ant isn't really going to be able to do that. But if you have a group of them, you have 50 or 100 of them, then they can share that task. They can explore a large area. Each ant maybe can find a different potential new acorn to live in. And then by sharing information and following very specific rules, the colony as a whole can actually sample all these different places, figure out which is the best place to live, and then move the entire colony to that, that new home. What makes a good home? The ants tell us what makes a good home, right? So we give them all these different kinds of nests and see what they like. And what they like are a dark nest. They want the inside to be nice and dark, so there's not a lot of light coming in. They like a, a nest that's pretty spacious, you know, for an acorn, not too small. Uh, they like one that has a very small entrance. Because one of the reasons they live in these nests is because they're trying to, you know, avoid their enemies. Uh, they don't want to be invaded by, say, parasite ants that will run off with their eggs and young to work as workers in the parasites colony. And so it's easier to defend an acorn that has a nice small entrance. They don't want it to be too wet. They don't want it to be too dry. And there's probably a lot of other things that we haven't even, you know, begun to explore that they pay attention to. But it's a pretty sophisticated decision they're making. There's lots and lots of different things they're thinking about when they compare these, uh, these acorns. Do they live anywhere else besides acorns? Well, there's a lot of different species, right? So I'm when I say they, I'm really talking about the species I work with, but there's probably 30 or 40 different species of this genus of ants, and some of them don't live in acorns. Some of them will live in rock crevices. So, for example, the ones I've been working with most recently, I just started working with, the ones who live near Phoenix, they live up in the mountains, and you'd find them just underneath a little sliver of rock on top of a bigger rock. Other ones will live in hollow twigs. There's a few of them who will dig holes in the ground, like you, know, you usually think of ants doing. But usually they find some kind of cavity that they can live in. It's already there. They don't want to have to dig their own cavity. They just want to find one already made. How do you set up experiments to learn how the colony thinks? It is very much like a collective intelligence. And in order to figure out what's going on, you, you have to watch what a colony does. You, know, you give the whole colony a problem and see what happens. Like, what nest do they move into if you make them move and choose between different nests? But the other thing you need is to know what each individual ant is doing as the colony does this problem solving, as the colony thinks. And the way you do that is you have to mark each ant individually so you can know which ant is which. You can know, for example, well, Martha found an acorn over here and then went off and told you know, Julie about that potential new home. 
The only way you can do that is if you can somehow individually identify them. So what we do is we paint them. We put little drops of paint on the ants, and then each ant can now be individually recognized. So you have these ants. They're an eighth of an inch in size, and you're painting them. Exactly. We're painting them. So yeah. How are you doing that? I just can't imagine. Well, you have to use, of course, a very small brush. That's part of it. In fact, we do use a very small brush. We just take a single bristle from an ordinary paintbrush. That's not enough, though, right, because these ants are tiny and they like to move. You have to slow them down. So we can basically uh, have them fall asleep by putting them in a little bit of carbon dioxide. That'll essentially kind of knock them out for a few minutes. But even then, they're, you know, they're, if you just sort of come at them with a bristle with paint on it, you're just going to get the ants stuck to the end and you push it around and the legs get stuck in paint and it's a terrible mess. So the other thing you have to do is take the ant and sort of fasten it in a little harness. And the harness is nothing but a sponge, a very soft sponge, with a single hair attached to it, and then you just kind of slide the ant under the hair. That keeps her still. And then underneath a microscope, you can bring your brush in and put up to four drops of paint on a single ant. Once wow. You, yeah. Now, did you learn this, or did you come up with this technique? I learned this, actually, believe it or not. Yes, I'm not the only one who does this. This is something that uh, people who study ants uh, do quite commonly. I learned it from a fellow named Nigel Franks, actually, in whose lab I worked a few years ago. How long did it take you to learn to paint ants less than an eighth of an inch in size? Yeah, it, it takes a little while. It takes, let's say, um, depends how much time you can devote to it. Let's put it in numbers of ants you have to mark badly before you can mark them well. Let's say, you know, after the first couple of colonies of ants, and where a colony has 50 to 100 workers, so maybe then, you know, 200 ants, then you're, you know, you're generally pretty good at it. And so, you know, I teach students how to do it now. Some people can pick it up faster than others. I always figure... People who had some experience, say, building models or, or painting models and this kind of thing or have a leg up on other people. Uh, but I think almost anybody can learn it after investing a couple of weeks' hard work. Is there any indication that you take this colony of ants and you basically knock them out for a little bit and you give them all these colorful patterns on them and then they wake up? Is there any indication that the colony looks around and says, whoa, what happened? <laughs> This looks strange. Are they, are they happy or they, maybe they think they look better? I don't know. Well, the one thing you have to remember about ants is, you know, the world looks really different to them because, for one thing, they don't actually rely on vision that much. You know, if you live inside an acorn, it's dark in there, and so they wouldn't even notice. You know, they wouldn't be able to detect the presence of these things by seeing them, but they can smell them. They have a very, very acute sense of smell, and what I find is that I think they actually don't much like the way they smell, you know, if they can detect them. And if you mark just a few of them and put them back in the colony, all the other ants will say, what's this? You know, there's something wrong here. And they'll, they'll just sort of go up there and, and work as hard as they can for a few hours and, and peel the paint right off. But if they're all marked, you know, if everybody is marked, then it's almost as though they kind of get used to it. You know, they all recognize, well, we all we smell different now. We smell like paint, but we all smell the same. And that's what's important for a colony, you know, to share a common colony odor so they know who belongs to the colony who doesn't. And then they'll tolerate it, and you can put paint marks on these ants, and they'll still be there a year later. Back to the ant colony. Uh, we usually think of, at least for me, when I grew up, I was thinking about the queen, and the queen gave all the instructions. They ruled the, the whole colony, and whatever was going to happen came from that central source. The question to you is, is that really true? Well, it's funny. You know, I mean, you hear that, that name, queen, and that's what it sounds like, right? It sounds like the ruler and people first started calling these big, apparently leading members of the colony queens 
centuries ago, and that's what they thought. They thought, this is the aunt who's in charge. But in fact, that's not the case. The queen is very, very important to the colony. You know, a colony would, would really die without a queen. The queen is the mother of all of the worker ants in the colony. But she's not in any way telling them what to do. In fact, it, it's closer to the truth to say the opposite. So, for example, when these emigrations I'm talking about, when they find a new home, the queen has no role at all in saying, well, we're going to move here instead of there, and you guys go and do this, and you other guys go and do that. She doesn't do any, anything of the sort. She just basically sits around and waits for the workers to make up their minds, and they just pick her up and carry her to wherever it is they're going to go. So she's important, but she's not in charge. Hmm. Now, someone might say what you've learned is really great to know, and actually I find it fascinating, at least from a basic knowledge, basic science. But your research extends beyond just knowing how ants think and problem solve. Can you talk a little bit about ant algorithms? Yes, ant algorithms, that's an interesting term, right? In a way, what I'm doing when I try to explain what the ants are doing is I'm trying to explain, you know, what sort of rules are they using to solve a problem? What rule does each ant follow that will lead the colony as a whole to do the right thing? What we do when we're trying to work this out is we try to come up with a mathematical description of what the ants are doing. And this is something you can describe as an algorithm. It's basically a mathematical recipe for solving a problem. And it turns out computer scientists who have their own problems to solve learn something about what people who work on ants have discovered about ant behavior, and they realize they could actually make use of the same problem-solving algorithms to solve human problems. And so uh, there's a lot of examples of this. A good one, uh, one I like particularly, involves um, scheduling garbage truck routes. So you imagine you've got a big city, and the city has you know, a fleet of hundreds of garbage trucks, and each one of these trucks has to visit every home and business in the city and make sure that the garbage gets picked up. But they want to do that in as economical a way as possible. They want to have each truck take the shortest route and spend the least amount of time. But they got to make sure everybody's garbage gets picked up. And that's a really tough problem to solve, that kind of problem. What these computer scientists realized is they could actually make a sort of artificial, you know, virtual ant colony that would explore solutions to this problem and come up with the best one. So each one of these kind of computer program ants goes around in a virtual city experimenting on different ways to schedule the trucks. And if it finds one that looks like it's pretty good, then it will tell the other ant programs to try to maybe explore that a little more. If it finds one that doesn't work very well, it just says, forget about this, nobody else bothered with this anymore. And that way you can very efficiently have all of these little ant-like computer programs experiment uh, with different solutions and come up with the best one. Kind of a, an ant math, huh? Exactly, yeah. These, it's basically mathematics based on what ants do. Again, at the beginning of the show, we said they're small, and sometimes you dismiss them, but here we are. We're dealing with complex problems, and we have solutions coming from what seems to be a small and simple creature. Well, I brought in today... You're thinking of ants and color and painting. The cover of the School of Life Sciences magazine, it's called Souls. And on the cover is this beautiful image. It's your image. And it has all these ants, and they're painted beautifully. And they're all these different colors. It almost, to me, seems to be an abstract painting, an abstract work. And it's something you might even see in a gallery or a museum. Do you do a lot of photography, and have you ever thought about a career in art? <laughs> well, I mean, I... I, I take a lot of pictures really for a scientific purpose, right, you know, to illustrate an experiment or something like this. And, 
Now, I took that picture basically because I wanted to make this point about how many ants are in the colony and the fact that we can identify them all individually. But, you know, sometimes you get lucky and you have something to photograph that is just really very beautiful, very striking sort of thing to, to see. That picture and uh, some other pictures I've taken like that, I think were, I was kind of lucky in that sense to have something that really looks nice. One of those pictures I entered in a, in a contest that was actually called the Art of Science. And the idea was to try to bring these things that people usually think as being very different together, you know, art and science, to have a look at the kinds of images people create in the course of doing science. And so there were lots of really uh, beautiful, interesting images there that all kinds of different scientists had produced. And I was fortunate that they liked that, that ant picture. They liked that image of painted ants, I think, it really is a striking one. And so I got some recognition for that. At least I think I got a third prize. All right. Actually, if I recall, there was an interesting flyer that was sent out to get people to actually submit their works. Uh, can you tell us about it? That's right. What did it say? It said, art is stupid and science is boring. Prove us wrong. I love it. I love it. You know, break down stereotypes, and that's just what you did. Well, I can tell you that I could actually see these again in a gallery, and what we have here is a kind of creative collaboration between ant and human. That's exactly right. I like to think of it that way, too. In case someone would like to see the image we're talking about, uh, they can use the web browser, type in askabiologist.asu.edu forward slash podcast, and then go to the content link for volume 17, which is what this episode is, and there we'll have a link to the cover image and the article that talks about your work. When you go out to, to collect your ants for your experiments, you now live in Arizona in the desert. Can you find them in the desert? These particular ants, there is some evidence that they live there, but people hardly ever see them. They're, it's pretty tough. It's not really their kind of environment. They like it a little cooler. If you go to the mountains outside of Phoenix, that's a great place to find them. Down here in the desert... There are fantastic ants, different kinds of ants, uh, harvester ants who collect seeds. There's, you know, all kinds of uh, ants who produce chemical trails they use to forage with, and you can just see these out on the sidewalk or just out in a field or any kind of place, almost any place outside. Sometimes, you know, places you don't want to see them, you'll see them in your kitchen. So there's lots and lots of interesting ants you can see right around here, right around Phoenix. Is there anything that really surprised you while you've been studying ants, something that just you never even imagined you'd see or experience? The thing that's most struck me about these ants is, you know, I've been emphasizing that the colony is a lot smarter than the individual. But still, these individuals can do some things that really impress you. And one of the things these ants do is that, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they count, but what they do is they pay attention to how many other ants there are around. So one of the really crucial rules they use when they're, for example, you know, picking a new nest is they repeatedly visit an acorn they're thinking about moving to. And some of their other nestmates are also visiting. Other ants are also visiting. And they're kind of keeping track. Each one is keeping track of how many other ants are there. And if there's not too many other ants there, then their enthusiasm about this acorn will be low. But once the population gets high enough, like let's say it's five or ten ants in there, then they, they can sense that, and that makes them decide, okay, this, this maybe is the place we really should live. And then they kind of switch into high gear in terms of telling their other nestmates about it and bringing other ants over to see this acorn. It looks almost like they're counting. They're probably doing something much simpler, something that involves, say, getting some sense of how often they're bumping into other ants. But still, it's a pretty remarkably impressive kind of smart thing, let's say, to be able to do for an individual ant to respond to be able to sense how many of its fellow ants are around. 
you know, one of the things we didn't talk about is you paint the ants, right? You yeah. paint the ants, which means you can tell one individual from another. But how do you watch them all this time to see them make the decision? What are you using for a tool? Yeah, that's a good point because um, after you've got them painted and you just sit there and try to watch them, even with you know 100 or 200 ants, it may, it's not many for an ant colony, but it's still a lot of ants to try to track. So what we do is we videotape them. And then we, you know, it may take them, say, three or four hours to, to move, to pick a nest and move into it. Um, and then it'll, we will spend much longer than that going over these videotapes and sort of painstakingly tracing what each ant did at each stage of the emigration. So the videotaping is really, really important. Yeah, that's, a, that's what, probably our major tool. So how do you record for four hours? A lot of tapes don't go that long. Yeah, well, you have to, what we used to do is change the tape. Um, that was like the main thing you had to not forget to do, or otherwise you would be really sorry. Uh, nowadays, we just go straight to a hard drive. You can just basically feed the, the output from the camera directly into a computer. And as long as you have a big enough hard drive, then you can store hours and hours and hours of tape or so, of um, recording. So now I can see that uh, we could have a future independent film, you know, Ants, the true story. Oh, that could be good, yes. Put it on YouTube anyway. I don't know if we can get anybody to pay for it, but we can certainly put well, it on YouTube. Well, we could speed it up, right? We could do this time lapse. Oh, yeah, that, that's a good idea, actually. That's, I think a lot can be done there. You know, one of the great things about studying the uh, immigration is that the ants, they're really moving fast then. You know, there's a crisis. Their old nest has been destroyed, and they've got to act fast. But usually these ants are pretty laid back, and they don't like to do anything fast. So if we wanted to study other kinds of behavior, you know, that are less about an emergency then actually that would be really useful time-lapse. So you can just compress 24 hours of, of action into, into one. That's probably the only way you could practically uh, get you know, good information from them. Okay, we don't have a movie on YouTube yet, but is there some place they can see some ant movies? Yes, I put a few of my uh, videos up on my website. So there's some nice ones there, both of lots of ants together, uh, painted ants uh, interacting and also some uh, videotapes of individual ants uh, recruiting one another when they try to get uh, their fellow ants to visit a site that they like. Well, excellent. I think what we'll do is we'll add the link to your website from this podcast so people can just go up on our transcript for this podcast and or the content link, and we'll have a direct link to the movies. Okay, that sounds great. I always ask three questions, and it's always fun to do this. One of the questions is, when did you first know you wanted to be a biologist? Oh, that's a good question. I have to say it was a really long time ago when I was probably no more than 10 years old and just playing with ants, watching other kinds of insects, collecting insects. Really early on, I was really interested in insects and wanted to keep working with them. So as soon as I found out there was such a thing as an entomologist, you know, a person who specializes in studying insects, then I was pretty excited because I thought, well, that's great. That means that's something I can do when I grow up. Your voice makes you sound like you're a lot older than what you are. You're actually a very young researcher here. I just want everybody to know that. So when he says a really long time ago, if you're a 10-year-old, it probably does seem like a really long time ago. But if you're my age, it seems like it wasn't that long ago. If you weren't a biologist, I'm going to take any capability for you to do biology or science. You're going to have to shift into another kind of career. What would you be? Hmm, that's a good one. If I could have any ability that I want, even ones I don't have now, that I'd want to be a musician. Is there a particular kind of instrument? I think guitar would be great, yes. I think it would be really fun to be a, a guitar player. So do you have a particular kind of music you like, or musicians? Well, classical guitar I find really, uh, really great, that I really enjoy. 
Hmm. So that would be something I could... Unfortunately, though, I have no musical talent at all. Well, I don't either, but that's okay. What advice would you have for a young scientist or maybe someone who decides that they've always liked ants and they want to switch their careers? Well, the thing about biology is I think you really want to spend as much time as you can with the organism. The great thing about insects is they're everywhere. It's not that hard to find them, to bring them into your home if allowed to, and sort of look at them and play around with them and, and see what they do. I think it's that kind of really up-close experience where you're actually not just reading about things, but you're actually doing things. I think that's what, that's what really makes the difference for learning how to do biology and really enjoying doing it as well. Well, Stephen Pratt, thank you for visiting with us today. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been Professor Stephen Pratt from the ASU School of Life Sciences. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University. And even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu. Or you can just Google the words, Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.